and welcome to the Q York podcast, brought to you from our local church in the beautiful city of York in the UK. The message you're about to hear is from one of our services, which also feature great live music and relevant movie clips. These can all be found on our blog, so to make sure you're getting the full experience, feel free to head over to qyork.co.uk and select blog to find the relevant content. There's also a huge selection of talks and live music videos on our media page, as well as a donate button if you'd like to show your appreciation and enable us to keep producing free content like this. Finally, to stay up to date on new blogs and events at Q, you can sign up for emails by filling in your name and email address at the bottom of any page on the website. But right now, it's time for the message. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to Q. It's nice to see so many new faces with us as well. Um, so before we crack on with this morning, we've got the wonderful Rob with us here again to bring his message today, which we're really excited about. He's a fantastic uh, part of this community, although we don't see him that regularly when he does come. It's a huge contribution to who we are. Um, so thank you again for being here, Rob. So I was listening to a podcast this week um, about the Louvre Museum in Paris. Um, and whilst I've been to Paris, I've only ever stood outside of the Louvre, I've never actually been in, uh, mainly because of the queue, it costs a lot, and I just get bored quite easy, so it's probably not for me. Um, <laughs> but uh, you're not enough stimulation for me, it's like, no. Anyway, it was really interesting to listen to because um, it, it brought up, it was actually on YouTube, I was watching it, and it brought up clips, and people pay an absolute fortune to get in. But the thing that people mainly go for is to see the Mona Lisa, right? And interestingly, they pay for their ticket, and as you go through, there are print A3 printouts of a picture of the Mona Lisa all the way through the museum until you finally get to the Mona Lisa. The funny thing was, I'm watching it, I'm thinking, so basically by the time you get to the Mona Lisa, you've seen it hundreds of times with arrows, and someone's like, well, why don't you just print it off at home and look at it in your own living room? And it's really funny because these pictures aren't even that good. They're literally just black and white printouts from, you know. Um, and it really spoke to me because I thought, isn't that fascinating that by the time they then get there, this Mona Lisa is so small, there's so many people crowding to see it that you can barely even get a good view. You can actually get a better view of the A3 printouts while you're walking to get there. And it made me think, how many of us are trying to get to a destination and we're missing the things along the way. The Louvre doesn't just host the Mona Lisa, it hosts a whole, whole group of fantastic, amazing things to look at. And I'm thinking, how much in life do we walk past things because we're not living in the moment and we're desperate to get to the destination? To the point as well that by the time we get to the destination, we're really disappointed. And I think for me, one of the lessons that I've learned recently is I feel that if we're not living in the moment and embracing what's happening now, life can pass us by so, so fast. It's short, right? And I think by the time you get there, you're not there anyway. You're then wishing for something else. So really, my encouragement today is, are you truly living in the moment? Are you living in the full presence of now? Because the truth of the matter is, we're about to experience something with Rob right now in this very moment. Some of you will be thinking what you're having for dinner later, what you're doing at work this week. The truth of the matter is, in that moment, you'll be missing an opportunity to really grasp something that could completely change your life. So let that be a little encouragement to you as Rob comes up. Completely embrace what's happening now. Don't miss it. And I really look forward to what you've got to say, Rob. It's over to you. Thank you. Hi, everyone. So we're in the back room, and I've prepared a talk that's like a backroom talk, but with no fun. Okay, so that's, uh, that's what I've done. Can you believe it's actually one year since I started speaking here? <laughs> Feels like 10. <laughs> yeah, and, and I think there's some new people. As is, I'm sure, obvious already, um, I'm here from the Church of England, so I'll let you ponder, I'll let you ponder that. We're going to go straight into the first clip. So, <laughs> on Q's website, and I've talked about this 
before. It says Q stands for a new way of believing. And Jenny has often said in the past that Q is about how you believe and not what you believe. But what is the how? And what is the new way of believing? And so I've decided on my kind of one year anniversary that I'm going to revisit the quest itself. How dare you, I hear you saying. Well, I've decided to dare. Uh, and in fact, the question is so big that I'm going to do it in two talks, assuming that I'm allowed back for the second one. Uh, this time, I'm going to talk about how humans believe. And then next time, I'm going to talk about the different sources of belief, our minds and imagination, science and uh, creation, and then so-called special revelation. But I'm going to start with philosophy because, strangely, we're not the first people to have a quest. In fact, quests have been going on in philosophy, at least, for two and a half thousand years. And the whole Dougal and the bishop scenario is, a, is an interesting one. I think many of us have had the experience of starting to doubt the validity of some of our beliefs and try and work out the justification for them. But actually, I disagree that it's just blind faith because philosophy has this whole idea of trying to justify belief. This is completely outside of the realm of religion. So, there's a relationship between belief and knowledge and truth that's a bit complicated. I'll be using all those terms. Some people think we can believe and know truth with a capital T, objective absolute truth. Some people don't think we can know anything in that way at all, and then there's just about every position in between. Now, the branch of philosophy that deals with belief is called epistemology. And you might say, look, I'm teetotal, that's not, that's not for me. But you have heard the word because it's the same word as epistle. Uh, it's, got the same, it's got the same root, and literally, Epistemology means how to do knowledge. And it's defined, there's lots of definitions, but here's one. The theory of knowledge, especially with regard to the distinction between justified belief and opinion. And I'm going to look at four ways very quickly in which philosophy suggests we can justify our beliefs. Because I think many of us are still wondering both how and what to believe. It's a, it's a struggle because if at the point that you break out from being told what to believe, you then have to figure out what you're going to believe for yourself. And that turns out to be not as straightforward as maybe it seems. So here's four. There's probably 104, but here's four ways in which philosophy deals with the subject. I'll give you the technical name, but it doesn't matter. The first one is evidentialism. Basically, it says beliefs are justified if I can explain them to myself. And maybe to you, but mostly to myself. In this theory, we validate our beliefs using internal arguments. And they're valid until there's a convincing counter-argument, which in philosophy is called a defeater. So let's say that I have a belief that I'm the best-dressed person who visits Q. Okay, based on two compliments I've had and the fact that I can see in the mirror that I look very good. But what if, then, you did a poll 
that said that actually Joel is the best dressed person in queue. Now I've got a problem because there's a counter argument that's stronger than my argument, which is a defeater in philosophy, and I can't really hold on to my original argument anymore. In evidentialism, there's usually the idea that there are some beliefs that are actually completely irrefutable, and they form a foundation on what we, on top of which we build our other beliefs. So fundamentalism uses that argument, but so does atheism. Um, fundamentalism uses the Bible as its foundation, and atheism typically uses science. But do we really believe by making arguments inside ourselves? And if so, why are we not all convinced by the same things? And why aren't we all believing the strongest arguments? That's the flaw in this one. Spoiler alert, there's a flaw in all of them. That's number one, it's the longest one. I can see some of you beginning to despair. <laughs> number two, beliefs are valid if they seem to be true to me. This is called phenomenology. So there's a thing called a seeming in philosophy and it's as simple as something seems to be true. And if something seems to be true, and it's not defeated by an argument, in this theory, you just assume it is true until something comes along. And the strength of your belief should be proportional to the strength of the seeming. So if I see my friend Katie, I will assume she's an actual person. She's the same person that she was the last time I met her. She's a real independent human, because that's how she seems. And until I found out it's actually her twin sister, Anna, I can be really very confident that I know what I'm doing. So the problem with this is that not everything is as it seems. Our perception of things is not always uh, corresponding with the underlying reality. And isn't the way we see things dependent on our vantage point? I remember Anth doing a talk on that, uh, which I think we watched again not that long ago. So the problem with phenomenology is it's really very subjective. Number three, beliefs are valid if they're if they're discerned by our God sensor. This is called proper functionalism. So we have a God sense that's able to discern the truth of God in our experience and in observations of the universe. And therefore our beliefs can be rational without an argument. And this approach underpins many religions, not just Christianity. But the problem is, our God sense doesn't seem to have led us all to the same place in terms of what we believe, or even to the same God. So maybe that doesn't quite work either. So what about our beliefs as secondary? It's the question that's the answer. Martin Heidegger, philosopher and one-time Nazi, said that we have a pre-understanding of something elemental and we spend our whole lives trying to articulate it. John Caputo, you can tell I'm doing a quote, I'm gonna put my glasses on, who's always good for a quote, says this, and I think you'll like this, over the course of our lives, we build up a host of various beliefs about this, that, and the other thing, most of which has got into our heads because of when and where we're born. But flowing underneath these beliefs is a more primal faith in the world itself, in life itself, 
a faith that precedes the division between faith and doubts, philosophy and theology, the sciences and humanity. There's no final interpretation with a capital F that puts an end to other interpretations. Interpretations live on in the plural and the lowercase, always exposed to the dangerous perhaps. We might love that because there's definitely an essence of that in Q. But there's a problem. There's a problem if all our beliefs are simply culturally conditioned and what's true can't be expressed. What do we actually then do with our lives? And postmodernism, which is what this represents, has kind of eaten itself as a result even in the minds of some of its own thinkers. Because the problem is, it's very difficult to express the difference in validity between Q Church and QAnon, based on this theory. And some of you are saying, well, QAnon's true, so what's the problem? So, my guess is that maybe more than one of these things made a bit of sense to you. Most of us do crave arguments for what we believe, but we also believe lots of things without arguments. We justify them later, or often not at all. I think some of us would say that we do have the ability to sense God, but that ability rarely brings us to specific beliefs. And that leaves lots of questions, but it doesn't have to mean that everything's a question and that nothing, as a consequence, has any meaning. So I'm going to return one more time to epistemology at the end, but that's in many hours. Um, <laughs> I'll, I'll come back to an idea that I think maybe ties a lot of this together. But let me just end this section by saying, believing isn't just necessarily a leap of faith. There are ways of justifying beliefs. There's no silver bullet in philosophy, but we do need to work to try and figure out why we believe what we believe. And there are some ways of thinking about it that are useful. Let me stop there, and we'll have the second clip. So having looked at how we justify our beliefs, or try, how do we change our beliefs? And uh, I can't remember the character. There was a character in a comedy show who was a hypnotist, and I just remember this one where he's, he's taken his girlfriend on a, on a date, and she wants something extremely expensive. And so he hypnotizes her to want some water and a salad. Um, and that's more or less what Obi-Wan Kenobi has just done there with the, uh, with the sand troopers. Um, so how do we change our minds? Well, actually, we don't know as much about this as we know about some other things. And that's because it's a fusion of neuroscience, psychology, philosophy, and anthropology. We're actually not good at combining disciplines like that. And we are starting to understand something of what happens when we do. The reason I know anything about it is because in my day job, I'm very involved in artificial intelligence and eventually start to understand something about non-artificial intelligence as a result. So the brain makes sense of the world by recognizing patterns using them to build models of reality to predict outcomes. And that's happening all the time. Michael Shermer, who's the founder of Skeptic Magazine, says that humans have evolved to believe things. And that's because there's two types of error you can make with beliefs. A type one error is that you believe something that turns out to be false. A type two error is that you don't believe something that turns out to be true. If you're a human, it's quite a good idea to make type one errors. Believing a stick is a snake 
is much safer than believing a snake is a stick. And so for our own survival, our brains have evolved to give the benefit of the doubt to beliefs because it keeps us alive. And the brain also seeks to conserve energy and reduce ambiguity. So it favors existing structures of belief. And actually, if we get some information that supports our current beliefs, our brain releases a bit of dopamine, our feel-good chemical, to reward us for leaving our belief structures alone. Because then it doesn't have to work so hard, it doesn't have to use more energy, which in our human history could have led to our death if we ran out of energy. From a cognitive perspective, having our beliefs challenged triggers all the exact mechanisms of being confronted by a bear in the woods. It's the same set of mechanisms. And actually, our beliefs become more rigid under stress. The brain's, um, the brain's ability to conserve our existing beliefs is so powerful that it can actually change our perception of color. If you see a banana in very low light, your eye isn't able to see that it's yellow, but your brain will make it yellow. Your brain photoshops the banana, basically, because its memory of the banana is that it's yellow. It's completely automatic and unconscious, and we think we're seeing objective reality, but actually our brain is essentially photoshopping reality to maintain its belief system that bananas are yellow. However, it's possible to overcome all of these defenses. And we have something called neural plasticity that means our brains can be reprogrammed. We can weaken the connections around our old beliefs and we can strengthen them around new beliefs so we can believe new things. David McCraney has written this amazing book called How Minds Change. It's not a religious book, it's a really interesting book. And he, he builds on what I've just talked about. And, and so when we experience some data that seems to challenge our beliefs, we firstly experience something called cognitive dissonance. It's a feeling that things do not fit together. Then we have two choices. We, ass we assimilate the data, which means that we make it fit our existing structure or we accommodate the data and we update our beliefs. But some weird things happen on the way. In 1949, two scientists at Harvard did an experiment where they showed people playing cards and they had to acknowledge them and report on what they observed. These cards had some strange features, like there were black four of hearts and these sorts of things. So cards that don't exist in the normal pack. At the beginning, no one saw the new cards. However, their response times back to the researcher got longer and longer. So something in their unconscious is telling them there's something wrong. But their conscious mind was holding on to the original beliefs about what a deck of cards looked like. But then they did something else, which I think is fascinating. They didn't spot the wrong cards. They said things like, the colors of these cards are a bit strange. I don't think that they're very well produced. So they started to question all of the cards. And then eventually they started to get it. And if they updated, 
their belief system, if they accommodated the new data, they could spot the new cards easily. And this is exactly what happens in real life. Something, some data comes along that challenges our beliefs. Typically, what we do first is double down on our old beliefs. In fact, our old beliefs under threat tend to strengthen first of all. But then there's a moment called the effective tipping point where we just can't hold on to our, own, our old beliefs anymore. And this can be very dramatic. This can cause a temporary collapse in our entire belief system, much like the questioning of all the cards. And in fact, the phase that follows if people manage to update their beliefs is actually described as post-traumatic growth. And people consider it in many cases to be the most precious thing that's happened in their whole lives. David McCraney also discovered that people do not change their minds based on facts and arguments. That just makes them defensive. The only way in which you can change someone else's mind is to get them to think about their own beliefs. Because most of us hold our beliefs very unconsciously. And it's only when we have the opportunity and the space to think about them that we start to wonder about them. And so the best form of approach to changing people's beliefs is dialogue and not argument. It's very obvious to see how that resonates with Q. And dialogue reminds us that we don't believe things in isolation. Anthropology says that we have shared narratives and rituals that both form and maintain our beliefs. Tanya Lerman observes that individual beliefs are influenced by what she calls faith frames or shared frames. And I remember Jenny's talk on frames. Because apparently there's good evidence to suggest that when it comes to believing, humans are lazy and biased. And we're lazy and biased because we assume to be interacting with a group. So trying to work out everything for ourselves is actually extremely inefficient. So we go in with some half-baked notions, expecting the group to say, that's a half-baked notion, what about this? And together we figure it out. That's much more efficient. In studies, groups always outperform individuals in virtually all tasks, which is quite interesting. And I think you can, we can look at the history of Q this way. I think Q had a shared frame, maybe not Q, the predecessor of Q, had a shared frame of fundamentalism at one time. And now it's moved to a shared frame of quest. And all the narrative and the rituals around this group have changed to focus on a different way of looking at the world. And maybe it's changing again. That's a question for later. But we have to be careful with this because there's something called tribal psychology. And that's what leads to conformity and groupthink. And the talk on labels last week, I think, is all about this. Because people will believe all sorts of weird things because they fear being thrown out the group. And this is not just fundamentalist Christianity. It happens in atheist chat rooms, in virtual conspiracy groups, and in political factions. Tribal psychology demonizes them the other. And it's actually very dangerous. And no one is immune from this. And we should be careful too, because we're not immune from it either. Social media has made it worse, because 
whole algorithms exist to work with our confirmation bias. By the way, confirmation bias is the technical term for when the brain rewards us for believing our current beliefs. The algorithms eventually just give us what we already believe. And that's a very, very dangerous thing. So why does any of this matter? Surely we just believe what we like. Well, the problem is, history tells us that beliefs actually turn into actions. I think very recently, the storming of Capitol Hill on the 5th of January 2021, where five people lost their lives, was predicated on the belief amongst those people that the election had been stolen from Trump. So far, 1,200 people have been charged in uh, relation to that event, and 800 of them prosecuted so far. Even more chillingly, on, on November the 18th, 1978, 909 cult members, including 276 children, died in a mass suicide uh, led by Jim Jones in Jonestown. Beliefs lead to actions. More positively, Mother Teresa, who was an obscure nun in, in Calcutta with a handful of pupils, believed, and this is a quote, that she was called to care for the hungry, the naked, the homeless, the crippled, the blind, the lepers, all those people who feel unwanted, unloved, uncared for throughout society. And by 2020, her organization had 5,000 members in 139 countries. Our beliefs turn into actions, good or bad, and that's why it matters. In fact, our beliefs might define the human condition itself. With that, we'll have the third clip. So we've looked a bit at the philosophy of the quest, and then we've looked a bit at the science of the quest. I want to look now at the theology of the quest. The Bible has its own epistemology, and I'm very indebted to Drew Johnson, who has written some really interesting books on the subject. And if we look at Genesis 2... Oh, by the way, I've got something funny. I was looking for a new Bible yesterday, and I found one. Um, it's called the Tabloid Bible. I'm going to read something from it in a minute. But here's the actual Bible, just to start with. So this is from Genesis 2, starting at verse 18. Let me put my glasses on so I can actually see it. Yahweh God said, It's not good for the human being to be on his own. I'll make him a helper suitable for him. Yahweh God shaped from the ground every creature of the wild and every bird in the heavens and brought them to the human being to see what he'd call it. Whatever the human being called a living being, that became its name. The human being gave names to all the animals, to the birds in the heavens and to all the creatures of the wild. But for a human being, he didn't find a helper suitable for him. So Yahweh God made a coma fall on the human being, so he slept, took one of his ribs, and closed up its place with flesh. Yahweh God built the rib that he'd taken from the human being into, into a woman and brought her to a human being. The human being said, this now is, flesh, is bone from my bones and flesh from my flesh. This one will be called woman, because from a man, this one was taken. I'm just going to read the um, excerpt from the tabloid Bible. This is an interview with Eve. I'm delighted to be here, said Eve. And in brackets, it says 30 minutes, where you'd have the age. Um, I don't think of myself as subservient, I think of myself as more of an upgrade, man 2.0 if you like. Eve also believes that she will be able to help around the garden. I want to help Adam the best I can, she told us. I'm looking forward to life in the garden. The fruit looks lovely. 
especially the apples. <laughs> it's pretty awesome. So what was the point of that? Well, God could just have made Eve. What was all this naming business? Ostensibly, Adam's looking for a companion and goes through all the animals and gives them names in the process. God knows clearly that none of them are the right kind of creature. But Adam goes through a quest by exploring a number of things, all of which in this case are not right. And that's why when he sees Eve, he knows, he knows it's right because he's been on a quest and he's experienced and seen and grapple with some things that aren't right. He says at last, because it took a while to find the right thing. Now we all know Genesis 1 to 3 talks about the fall of humankind, but it talks endlessly about knowledge and beliefs, and we tend not to draw this out of the passage. By the way, it doesn't matter what you think about Genesis as factual or not factual, historical. It's primarily a myth, and by myth, I mean a way of communicating deep truths. Whether it's historical or not is actually secondary, and I read that from an evangelical, so I'm on safe ground. So, in the garden, there's two trees. There's the tree of life, but there's also the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And Adam was not allowed to eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And as I've delved into these passages, it is amazing just what we don't know about them. People just don't know. What is the tree? Why was it a problem? What happened? It's a real open-ended thing. And in such a context, I think it's uh, safe for me to speculate along with everybody else. So here's my speculation. I think when they ate from the tree of knowledge, what happened to them was a bit like what we saw in the clip. So in the clip from the film Limitless, he takes a drug and it gives him access to all this knowledge. He's got access to everything he's ever half seen and so on. Spoiler alert, it doesn't end that well. And in the garden, it doesn't end well either. And I think it's because eating from the tree short-circuited God's desired for humans to acquire knowledge through quest. Because you then acquire knowledge with experience and you acquire knowledge in relationship with God but also one another. I think that's God's blueprint for knowledge. And when you short circuit it and just get loads of knowledge, completely disconnected from experience, completely disconnected from relationship, it does really bad things to us. In Corinthians, it says knowledge puffs us up, literally means inflates us, but love builds us up. And I think that's why the Bible is just the very opposite of a textbook, despite what we've done with it. The Bible's full of stories and narratives and poems and songs. It's all these pictures of people on a quest, trying and sometimes failing to grapple with the reality of existence. We actually just don't get a load of answers from it. And I think that's true actually of most of the other religious texts that underpin the world religions.
what we get is a sense of wisdom from reading it. We don't just get this short-circuited textbook knowledge. Even the creeds of the church were a 400-year quest just to write those short bits of text as they grappled together to try and understand what on earth was going on. So when fundamentalism or any other ism short-circuits the quest process and says, here's all your beliefs, believe them, the irony of all ironies is it's unbiblical. Because the biblical view of knowledge is knowledge acquired through process and quest, through relationship and experience. And so when we just give people a load of pre-packaged stuff to believe, we've actually undercut the very process that God shows us over and over and over again in the Bible. By the way, Talking about sources next time, but I can't help mentioning the serpent. Um, It does matter who you listen to and not just what you listen to. It's good to listen to people who have your best interests at heart, I would say. The serpent's actually right in the story. We haven't time to read it, although in the tabloid Bible, it says, serpent questions God's fruit policy. (laughs) and the serpent uses the neuropsychology that I mentioned in the middle section brilliantly starts a dialogue with the woman some very gentle questioning and misdirection and she draws her own wrong conclusion it's a master class in how to change someone's mind so Where does this leave us? Is there anything that brings it together? Well, I think there is. Um, Drew Johnson, again, thinks that the uh, the epistemology of Michael Polanyi, I do wish he picked a person with an easy name to say, but Michael Polanyi is the best representation of the one found in the Bible. Polanyi died in 1976. He was a doctor, and then he was a chemist. He turned philosopher and economist. He was a polymath. Um, His philosophical ideas are complicated, but here's a whistle-stop tour, mostly in quotes. I think these will resonate. So like neuroscience, Genesis, and Q, but not most philosophy, Polanyi believed Knowledge is a lifelong journey, not a destination. So Polanyi believed in quest. Secondly, learning's not just a process of gathering information, but a process of personal transformation. In Polanyi's theory, there's no dispassionate observer who's outside the process. Our quest for knowledge changes us. Thirdly, Polanyi says, knowing is a skill honed by practice. It's more like being a connoisseur than an academic. He says the best way to learn things is to plunge yourself into them so that they indwell you. I actually think that's how the vast majority of talks at Q are created. You know, people just plunge themselves into a subject for X number of weeks, and then you get something that comes out the end of that. Polanyi says that's the best way to learn. And here's a really great example he uses. So, who knows the most about cycling? Is it the child who can ride a bike, but knows absolutely nothing about the physics involved and in fact has never heard of physics? Or is it a physicist who can explain all the equations but can't ride a bike? Polanyi says that they both 
know something, but the child knows more. Because our knowledge and our beliefs are in a context of real life, we don't have to explain the theory of everything because we're on a quest in our real lives, in our real context together. He also said the process of knowing is not a solitary endeavor, but a collaborative enterprise. He proposed that all members of the community of faith have a joint task of discovering reality and revealing it to the rest of the community. Disagreement and controversy, his words, are an essential part of this process. And finally, our understanding of reality is always provisional and subject to revision. This doesn't have to diminish our beliefs at any one point in time or lead to relativism. So what about Q? I've just got some questions. They're short questions, but they're not simple questions. And the fabulous thing is I can ask them and I don't have to be involved in answering them. Number one, is Q on a shared quest of jointly trying to discover reality? Or do we mostly just share our individual journeys? Or do we think those are just two sides of the same coin? Number two, is Q on a divine quest like the one initiated in Genesis? Or is it more of a pluralistic exchange of human ideas which might have a spiritual component? Both are legitimate things to do, but they are different to one another. Three, is Q still in post-traumatic growth? Or have we plateaued? What is Q's current shared frame? And is it the right one for the future? Is it changing anyway? Who are we listening to? And do they actually care about us? And then finally, how can the community avoid conflict and hurt amidst the necessary disagreement and controversy of the quest. Look, I, I believe that this platform is the best platform I have found for the kind of believing, a new kind of believing, that we actually ironically see in the Bible. But I think it has to be protected and nurtured. And I think there may be discussions and decisions about how it continues. But it's a precious thing. And I just encourage you all to put the time and effort and energy in to making sure that it goes in the way you want it to. Thank you very much. First of all, thank you for your encouragement and words. Wasn't that fantastic? Really great, as per usual. Thank you. Um, there was a few things a couple of weeks back that I was going to share, um, I discussed with Claire, and I feel like on the back of what you've said, I think it's really important that I, I mention it. When you said about post-traumatic growth, that just absolutely hit me like a ton of bricks. We hear a lot about post-traumatic stress disorder, uh, but when you said post-traumatic growth, I thought, wow, that is just, just incredible. Thanks, Danny. Um, we've been forced to reconsider our own beliefs and then brought us into this frame of mind. Um, I don't know whether you remember, but when, when Anth retired, he uh, played the Forrest Gump clip of him running with the beard. And um, it says, he turns around to his followers and he says, I'm tired, I'm done running now. And he walks away and, and you look around and they're just in the middle of nowhere, in the middle of a desert, right? And they look at each other like, well, well what, what are we supposed to do, right? But they've run with him on the journey. They've seen his vision and his purpose. But then the moment that stops, it's like, well, what are we supposed to do? 
And it reminded me of the Exodus story. Why have you brought us into the desert to die? Um, the truth is it's a hard, it's a hard pill to swallow. And, and one of the things that hit me, um, it's a possibility that we can even resent the fact that although we've been taken on an incredible journey, we feel like now we're in the midst of a nothingness, that we don't know exactly what it is that we're supposed to be doing. Um, and despite bread and manna being provided all the time on the journey, it's still not enough because we don't know what it is we're supposed to be looking for to get to the promised land. And the reason why I'm saying that is because I do feel that Q is that, in a way, the post-traumatic growth is we were stripped of all our past beliefs and the things that we held so sacred. And to some degree, we're now living in that sense of post-traumatic growth where you are now being challenged to find your new way of living on the journey. And for some, that can be really difficult. But ultimately, Q is a facility that provides the space to allow that to happen. And I really believe that that's the value of it, like what you said. And while you were talking, I thought of an upgraded computer. There's nothing more frustrating to me than an upgraded program. It's like, I liked how it was before. I don't need it to change. Microsoft Teams keeps telling me, would you like to switch to the new version? No, no, I don't. Leave me alone. Same with Outlook Express. It's awful. It looks terrible. Leave me alone, right? And it's not necessarily, of course, the new version is to benefit you, but you have trained your mind to be used to the old version. However, we don't realize the same would happen with the new version if we were just to give it time, right? And interestingly, I was thinking speech is more regulated now than ever. You know, you hear a lot of conversations on podcasts about, you know, the issue of the challenging of free speech and as culture changes, um, the lack of dialogue and discourse isn't liberating people, but it's tribalizing them. And that's why Q is so wonderful, because we actively encourage ideas and questions to flow, even if they are uncomfortable and we don't like them. So this last song, interestingly, is No Matter Where You Are, I'll Be There. And it says, I will stand by you even when we fall. I will be the rock that holds you up and lifts you high so you stand tall. I won't let you go, no one can take your place. Oh, a couple of fights and lonely nights, don't make it right, don't let it go to waste. And I won't let you fall, I won't let you go. No matter where you are, no matter where you are, I'll be there. And I thought, isn't that the ethos of Q? That we say, no matter where you are on your journey, we're gonna be alongside you as a collaborative effort to get to the promised land. So thank you very much, Rob, it's been absolutely amazing. Thanks for listening to another Q York podcast. Now, if you've enjoyed what you've heard today, then we would love to hear from you. Feel free to drop us an email to info at qyork.co.uk and let us know who you are and where you're listening from. Don't forget there are blogs and all sorts of media to be enjoyed at qyork.co.uk, which are welcome to browse at your leisure. Until next time, enjoy the quest. <laughs>